Well, in this session, we're going to take a look at the good news of the judgment. And uh, for many, the, the subject is anything but good news. Uh, even for Adventists, it is something that strikes fear. And um, for most of us, outside of October 22, 1844, the investigative judgment began. The judgment is a mystery to us as to what, what it's about. And, uh, and of course, it brings fear. There's another presentation that I make that it's not, it, I, I didn't have time to, to put it in here. But what I did one day is I just went through scripture and the spirit of prophecy and hit the highlights and just went through and in one sweeping motion looked at the three phases of the judgment. Uh, I did it because of a discussion I was hearing in the office and something didn't ring right about that. I wanted to see what inspiration uh, in the word and in spirit of prophecy had to say. And, and I came away amazed at two things. One, the incredible transparency of God. And two, how careful he is to protect our power of choice. I marveled as those two things rose to the surface. And what I am finding is that the more time I spend in getting to know him, the more I love him. And, uh, and that's really, really what we're called to do. It's the only way out of our predicament. It's, the only, it's hard to trust someone you don't know. That's just the bottom line. And it's, uh, and, it's, and it's important for us. It is all important for us to get time to know who he is. And so it is good news. What I'd like to do as we get started is uh, I'd like to just kind of read the, the opening paragraph to our study because I think it does a real good job of, uh, of creating for us the framework for our presentation. I see we have some folks coming in. Are there some studies back there for them? Do we have some, uh, some sheets? Oh, we do. Perfect. Somebody already thought ahead. Excellent. 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 Um, before I do, though, um, we're going to have two sessions this afternoon, and <clears throat> I, we need all the help we can get from the Lord. And I believe that I think sometimes we offend him without meaning to. Uh, I know that's true for me. And, uh, and I always feel that in a, in a service in which we're asking for his presence whenever possible, I feel, I feel like we ought to kneel. That's how I feel, to humble ourselves before him. Uh, it's a recognition of our need for him. And it certainly is mine. And uh, so let's do that. Father, we come to you grateful for the love that you have demonstrated to us already in your son and really in the, in the beauties that yet remain on this planet that you have given to us day by day. We thank you, Lord, for the things you're teaching us, that the sanctuary Father reveals the plan of salvation, how you intend to save us and, and how we need to understand this so that we can intelligently cooperate with you. We're grateful, Father, for the reminder that it's only by beholding the Lamb of God that the sin in our lives can be taken away. And that's what you told us. And, and Lord, you, you reminded us today that it is a daily experience. It's not optional any more than breathing is for those who wish to live. Our only hope is in Jesus. And to, in, in listening and following his careful and loving directives for each one. And Lord, as we gather together here, we're going to take a look at the judgment, Father, that is taking place. We're just we're going to be looking at the mechanics. And so, Father, I pray that you will anoint my lips. Touch them, Lord, with that coal from off the altar, that truly will be your words found. I pray, Lord, to be your instrument, the tool in your hand. I pray you'll bring to my mind the illustrations that you want me to present. Father, you see the audience. You know them. Before this world was created, you knew we would be in this room. You saw us. You know each one by name. You know the struggles in the lives. You know the questions. You know the heartaches. There's no way I can reach this crowd. And in reality, not even one. But I pray for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that each one will hear what they need to hear. And Father, I pray that after you have visited us and blessed us, I pray that all the accolades will be laid at the feet of Jesus and not this feeble, erring mortal. 
So, Lord, thank you for your goodness. I pray that you will hide this instrument behind the cross, that Christ will be not only lifted up, but rightly represented, I pray. Thank you for your goodness, dear God, and now prepare our hearts to hear thy voice. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we still have some seats, some more coming in. Again, if you'll take out your papers, I'm going to read the introductory paragraphs to uh, lay the groundwork for us and our study today. In this study, we will learn the truth about the judgment. The truth of a final judgment is deeply rooted in the Bible. It is mentioned scores of times. Psalmists, prophets, and apostles all bear consistent testimony to it. Jesus also made many pointed references to the judgment. It marks the climax of some of his greatest parables, and it is the focal point of much of his teaching. The Bible writers had a unique perspective on the judgment. They did not treat it as bad news, but as good news. They did not view it as something outside of the redemptive process, but as part of the process. They saw the judgment as proof that God is a moral God and that the universe has a moral base. They saw it as proof that history is not an aimless process, aimless, undirected process. To the Bible writer, history was going somewhere. Therefore, they welcomed the judgment with eagerness and hope because it promised the ultimate exposure and condemnation of evil and the ultimate vindication and triumph of righteousness and truth. The judgment was not viewed by the Bible writers as something to fear. It was always puzzling to me when I would hear David cry out for judgment because it scared me. And it, and it just dawned on me that there was something David knew that I didn't because the judgment frightened me. I pray that by the end of this study that our fear will not be of God. Now, don't, mis don't, don't misunderstand me. The Bible says fear God, but it's not afraid. It's respect. Are you with me? God does not call us. We're told that he loved us with an everlasting love and with loving kindness, he's drawing us. And, uh, and so we, we don't fear people that love us. Amen? Amen? But there is a fear factor, and we're going to find out what it is. But it's not God. So what we're going to do is we're going to look first at the mechanics, what the Bible does reveal to us about the judgment, so we can create a picture here, pull it all together, get an accurate picture. Then we're going to look at, at the end, is, the, is how it operates. Pulling together what we know about the gospel and about the mechanics of the judgment, we're gonna lay out how this thing works. Does that make sense? So let's take a look at question number one. Can we be certain there will be a judgment? Acts 17.31 says, God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world. What is that day that he appointed? October 22, 18.44. That is the day in which the judgment began. Very important. Now, uh, in describing the judgment scene, Daniel lays it out for us. We're going to look at it quickly. Daniel 7, 9, 10, 13, and 14, as I mentioned on the opening night, that if we had been reading this text on October 22, 18.44, we would have been reading what was actually happening in the sanctuary in heaven. Let's take a look at those texts I have here. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. By the way, if the thrones were put in place, what were they before? Out of place. The Ancient of Days was seated, what was he before? Standing. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came from before him, and a thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were open. I was watching in the night season, and behold, one, like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. So what we're seeing here is a setting up, a preparation. The judgment now begins. And that's the day, October 22. Let's take a look uh, at number three. Who will be brought into the judgment? 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat 
of Christ. You know, growing up in LA, it wasn't uncommon to see a policeman show up at a neighbor's door and knock on their door and to hand them uh, a subpoena. And uh, can you imagine one day if you heard the knock on your door and you opened it and you were uh, handed a subpoena, uh, would, would you sleep very well that night? <laughs> you would want to know what the charges were, right? And you would be looking for a lawyer. And, uh, but is the situation less real than the one we're facing now? The reality is, is that the judgment has been underway. I, I want to touch on something here. I often hear Adventists say this, and that is that uh, we don't know when the judgment is going to pass from the dead to the living. How many of you recall Ellen White saying, Christ could have come ere long before now? She made this statement in the 1880s. Um, I just recently heard Elder Reed say that in the late 1850s she said it. Do you realize what that indicates? Could he have come if the judgment of the dead was not finished? No. The fact that Christ could have come ere long before now is an indicator to us the judgment of the dead is past. You know, the reality is we shouldn't be here. And in the next presentation, I'm going to share with you why we still are. Because the sanctuary tells us why we still are. Let's continue. Number four. With which class will the judgment begin? 1 Peter 4.17 For the time has come for judgment to begin where? At the house of God. And if it begins with us first, it's a very interesting question. If it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who did not obey the gospel of God? Very interesting. The implication here, if judgment begins with us, then those who come into it later are lost. Very interesting, if it begins with us. So actually, if you're in the investigative judgment, that's good news. It is good news. And we're going to look at it in a moment here why that is. Uh, to begin with, we remember that when we were talking about uh, the sinner coming with his, uh, his sacrificial lamb, you remember he confessed his sin over the lamb. His sin was transferred to the lamb. The life of the lamb was taken. The blood was then captured, signifying, symbolizing that the sin now was in the blood. And it was later sprinkled before the veil in the holy Place, signifying that that sin had been transferred there. Are you with me? And so God was trying to communicate with us that when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, our sin is passed on to him. And when he went into the most holy place, it was brought there. And so on our books, the blood of Jesus washes away that sin, and next to the sin is written the word pardoned. Now this is going to trip some people up. I hope it doesn't. Stay with me. A probationary period then is given to us to prove whether or not we really meant it. Because there are people out there that are interested merely in fire insurance. But they really don't love Christ. Are you with me? Now, by the way, if you're one of those today that says, you know, I really don't love Christ, welcome to the club. The only way to love Christ is to spend time with him. And love develops. You know, I've been married 22 years now to my beautiful wife, and I can say before you with great confidence that I love her now more than I did the day that we married. And as we spend time with Jesus and come to understand his sacrifice on our behalf, our appreciation and love for him will, will grow. It will grow. So what happened then is on the Day of Atonement, that blood then from... Uh, the goat that represents Jesus cleanses the sanctuary, and then all those sins are placed on the scapegoat known as Azazel. You've heard of the blotting out of sin? That's when it takes place. It's very interesting. If you do research, study on this, you'll find that the sealing and the blotting out of sin are, are just about synonymous. Are you with me? So we're given a probationary period. Wait, Pastor, are you saying those sins are still mine? No, they're not. They're Jesus. But there is a record of where they came from. But when I accept Jesus as my Savior, those sins are placed on Him. They become His. And He suffers the punishment for me. But a probationary period is given. 
to show whether or not we really meant it. You remember in October 22, 1844, there were a lot of people that walked away from Christ. There were many that said, oh, we really didn't believe it anyway. It was fire insurance. But there were others that cried and wept and struggled with the word until God revealed his will. And that's the group we want to be part of. Amen? We want to be part of that group. And so, so the only sins that are investigated are those who ever made a profession of having served Jesus Christ. Open your Bibles with me. To a very familiar chapter, John chapter 3, but we're not going to look at a familiar verse. Why aren't the wicked included in the investigative? We touched on one reason. They didn't ask for a savior. Take a look here at John 3. Let me get there. And we're not going to look at John 3.16. Well, let's do it. It's too beautiful to pass up. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now look at 18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned. What's the next word? Already. Already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. The only way out of this mess is through Christ. We're, every one of us here have sinned. We're doomed to die. The only way out is Jesus. What about bad people that, that, are, that haven't served Christ that do good things? I am glad there are people out there that do good things, aren't you? But we're not saved by our efforts. Let me share something with you, and, and it'll come out here. If I had a surgical knife in my hand, okay, you know, uh, if I have a tray table, there's a surgery that's gonna take place here, a table, and uh, there's some cloth, we peel it back, and there are all these instruments. What do we call this in here? We call it a sterile field, right? If one of those instruments hits the ground, but can it still function? Can it still work? Can it still cut? The problem is that all of its works are contaminated. So our good works, without Christ living in our hearts, is contaminated with self. And so what has to happen like that instrument is a source outside of itself is going to have to cleanse it to make it functional. Are you with me? Does that make sense? Yes, and now we're going to touch on that. We're going to touch on that. Because what happens is, let me illustrate it with this story. When, uh, when my son was three years old, uh, we had someone who's, who came over to our home and, and was using the Lord's name in vain. I talked to this person that they needed to stop doing that. Well, my son picked it up. And so he started doing Now he didn't know what he was. He's three years old for pity's sake. And I was a new dad and I didn't know how to deal with this. And uh, so I heard him doing it, and I brought him into his room, and we sat down, and we talked about it, and how this was not a good thing, that we respect and honor God's name. And with his big brown eyes, he nodded his head. And, uh, and so I thought that was the end of that. The next day, he was doing it again. So I brought him back into his room, and this time I brought a little, a little picture there of the Ten Commandments. And, uh, and I shared with him that's not good, and I showed him God's law and how we're to respect his name, and he nodded. And the next day, he was doing it again. And... Um, and so this time I brought in the Ten Commandments again and we both talked about it and this time we prayed together and he nodded. And the next day was the Sabbath and we were on our way to church and, um, and as we were, we were parking, he cut loose on another one. And, uh, and I told my wife, go inside, I'm, I'm going to take care of this. And I told him, stay in the car, I'll be right back. And then when he cut loose on it, by the way, he was eyeballing me to see what I was going to do next. So he knew. He knew what he was doing. 
was not right, though I don't, he didn't understand, I don't think, he, what he was doing. So anyway, I, uh, I went for a walk, uh, a short space from the vehicle, and I said to the Lord, you know, Lord, I, I don't know what to do. I feel that if I continue to allow this, it's that uh, he's going to think it's okay, and, uh, and, 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 and it isn't. I feel I have no other alternative but to spank him. I don't know what else to do. And I said, so Lord, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to spank him. I said, but Lord, even though I do that, it may not reach his heart. So you're going to have to do something to reach his heart. And, and so I, I went back into the, the car and I explained to him what had happened and, uh, and, and what I was about to do. And he immediately assumed the position, <laughs> which, which was an indicator to me that he knew, that he knew. Now, I, 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 didn't, I wasn't going to spank him with my hand. I didn't know what to use. I remember my father used a belt on me, and I survived. So I thought, well, I guess that's what I'm going to do then. And so I explained to him what was going to happen next. So he was over there. And I'm sitting in the back seat of a 91 Mitsubishi Galant, and there just isn't a lot of space back there. And I had the belt in my hand, and, uh, and I, I just wanted to get him one time to impress him. You know, there's an incredible connection between here and here. And, <laughs> and um, so I reared back. And as I came through, uh, the belt, something deflected the blow. And by the time the belt got to his hindquarters, it just barely touched his pants. And of course, he thought that was great. And, uh, and I informed him that that didn't count. And so he had to go back. <laughs> and, and so I got, and this time, I thought I would, I, would, I, I knew I was going to have to come through with gusto because I was going to meet uh, with a deflection again. And uh, so I figured I'd better come in with, with some gusto to make sure by the time it gets him, it feels him. So I came through with gusto again, and again, something deflected the blow. It was at this moment that I realized what it was. I had placed the belt buckle here in order not to hurt him. And when I came through, I got myself right in the knee. Now, I forgot about everything at that moment, because the second time, I felt it. <laughs> and I was riding in the back seat of my car, holding my knee. It hurt really bad. And uh, as I was back there, <laughs> with, with, with all this taking place, all of a sudden I heard this little voice that said, uh, I heard him call my name. He called me. He said, Daddy. And when I looked, there were tears welling up in his eyes. And he said to me, Daddy, I'm sorry. And somehow he had connected the pain that I was going through with what he was doing. And I realized that God had given me the key to his heart. And I turned to him and I said, Bubby, Please, don't say that anymore. It hurts, Daddy. And that was the end of the issue. The works, the bad works stopped. You see, the works is only a representation of whether or not we love God. The whole foundation of obedience is based on love. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. It's, it is a response of love. So those who continue doing the thing that hurts Christ are bearing witness that they don't love him. Does that make sense? Amen. I'll share with you other illustrations to kind of flesh this out as we go along. So, so in the first phase of the judgment is only those who had claimed Christ as their savior. The, the rest of the lost, the lost do not enter into the first, but in the second phase of the judgment. So let's continue. Number five, who is the prosecuting attorney? Revelation 12, verse 9 and 10 says, The great dragon called the devil and Satan. And what is he? The accuser of our brethren. You know, so often when we think of the judgment, we have this picture. This is my picture probably from my Catholic background of Jesus standing between the Father and me saying, Please, no, not this one. Spare this one. Don't, 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 get, don't hurt this one. As though the Lord is just trying to you know, Jesus, get out of the way. That is a horrible picture of God. The accuser is not God. The accuser is the prince of darkness. Open your Bibles and turn with me to the book of John, chapter 16. John 16. If you're there, say amen. If you need more time, mercy. John 16, 
And I'm going to read to you verse 27. And what does it say? It says, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. I want to show you another one. Luke 12. Luke 12. Luke 12, and I'm going to read to you verse 32. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. How quickly we forget that God so loved the world that he gave. It's not the Father that we're to fear in the judgment. Let's flesh that out a little more. All right, who is the defense attorney? 1 John 2, 1 says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate, a lawyer with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. This is amazing. Not only is there a prosecuting attorney, there's a defense attorney. And that defense attorney calls himself the brother of our race. He's your brother. So you're going to court, and your brother's your lawyer. You like the sound of that? Yes. It gets better. Take a look at number seven. Who's the judge? Watch this very carefully. For the Father judges no one. but has committed all judgment to the Son. By the way, if you want more references for that, get your pencil handy and ready. We're not going to go through all these, but if you want more references, I'm going to give you four. Acts 17, 31. Acts 10, 42. John 5, 27. And this one is from the Spirit of Prophecy, volume, uh, uh, Testimonies, Volume 9, page 185, paragraph 4. And what you're going to find is the reason why Christ is the only one who can judge us. is because Christ is the only one that entered into our experience. Jesus is qualified to judge us. Therefore, our judge is also our lawyer and our brother. Volume 9, Testimony, page 185.4, paragraph 4. And Ellen White lays out there, reiterates what I just shared with you, and why. This is why. So the Father is the presiding judge. You will read that in um, the chapter entitled Facing Life's Record. By the way, when you study that, you're going to see what is emphasized there is Christ's mediatorial role. It doesn't emphasize his judgment role. And I, I'm puzzled by that, and I think part of it has to do with early Advent history. If you recall that when, in a, October 22, 1844, when Christ came into here, this area was the area of mediation, remember? You had the, the light from the menorah, the, the bread, and they had the incense. And our early Adventist pioneers figured that when Jesus moved in, the probation had closed for the world. You heard of the shut door? Probably the shut door you understand now is the correct one. Early on, we had an incorrect one. And that's what they meant by it, that the probation had shut for the world, but that, um, and so they were just waiting for Jesus to finish the judgment and come back. But later, our pioneers began to realize what's inside this box. We know it's the Ten Commandments. What else? It's the bowl of manna and Aaron's rod, okay? So the bowl of manna is the bread. You have the Shekinah glory, which is the light. And the priest came in with the incense. The elements for mediation found here were found here. And our pioneers began to realize, wait a second, Christ is still mediating while he's also judging. So what is that saying? Dear friend, we still have a mediator up there. The door of probation is still open for us. And that was the news. And that may have been the reason why she emphasized that. But in there she mentions that God, the Father is the presiding judge. He is overall. But the acting judge is Christ. You with me? Very, very important. So we're setting now the stage. So are we afraid of the Father in the judgment? There is no need to be. None at all. So what we're learning in studying the Bible is that the investigative judgment, in the context of our discussion here, we're not going to flesh all this out. But the judgment is actually in three phases. The first one is the investigative judgment, which is underway right now as we sit in this room. Uh, now, if it is found that we 
believed in Christ's sacrifice for us and remained in a faith relationship with Jesus, allowing Christ to finish the work that he's begun in our life, as this is reviewed, the universe says, well, yeah, the evidence is there. We are found not guilty. But if it is found that we reneged, we went back on our commitment, uh, or that we never made one, then, I mean, it, uh, we never went forward with one, then what happens is that it defaults to phase two. Phase two is where all of the lost enter into, and that's during the thousand years, what we refer to as the millennium. That is the sentencing phase of the judgment. When the righteous now judge with Christ, why can't they? Because they have had the same experience that Jesus had and experienced victory like Jesus did. You with me? And so they then enter into that portion, and then phase three is the, the executive portion uh, of the judgment, which is uh, the destruction of, the, of sin and sinners. You with me so far? Those are the three phases of the judgment. Uh, let's take a look at number nine. What are the books talked about in Daniel 7.10? The book of sin, uh, or the book of iniquity, I should say. Uh, Jeremiah 2.22 says, Yet your iniquity is marked before me, says the Lord of God. So there's one book that has marked down every sin and every wrong thing and thought we have ever committed in our lives. There is another, is the book of remembrance, Malachi 3.16. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. So all the good things that have been done in our lives are recorded in that book. Then there is a third book, the book of life, Revelation 3, 5. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before the, my Father and before his angels. And so every person who has ever accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, their name is written in the book of life. And so there is an investigation to see if that name can be kept there. Does that make sense? All right. Number 10. What is the standard by which all will be judged? Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14 says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether it is good or whether it is, is evil. And that's why it is so lethal for us to compare ourselves with one another, to see what is right, you know, um, well, if Pastor Baute is doing it, then it must be okay for me to do it. Do not do that, because I may be blind to that sin, or I may be lost, and you don't want to follow me. Our focus has to be on the Lord Jesus Christ in his life. That is the standard. Jesus is the law in living form. If you want to know what the law looks like in the life when it's written on the heart, look to Jesus. And so Jesus is the one we're to compare ourselves to. James 2.12 says, So speak and do as those who will be judged by what? The law of liberty, and that law reflects to us both the character and his essential personality. And it's very important for us to understand that. Number 11. By the way, this is very interesting. I want to give you the reference to this quote. Uh, you can write it down. Gospel Workers 315. Gospel Workers 315. Here's the quote. The only question asked in the judgment, how many questions are asked? The only question asked in the judgment will be, have they been obedient to my commands, my commandments? The only question asked in the judgment will be, have they been obedient to my commandments? Now, that's pretty sobering. I need Jesus. I need someone who's going to give me a new past. And Christ died to give me his past. That's called justification. And I need Christ living in me to give me strength to live above the power of sin. Because apart from him, it's not going to happen. Are you with me? Okay. You know, we, I think we need to come to the place to no longer have confidence in the fact that we know the right doctrine because it doesn't mean anything if we don't know the right person. Now, if we know the right person, then the doctrine means something. You know, it's interesting. But when, early in my life, I walked away from God because I didn't think he was interested in me. I went to the academy, I knew the truth, but I wasn't interested because I didn't think he was. But when I came to the place one day, and I, I don't know if I've shared this, I was about uh, 19 years old when I tried to take my life. And it was in the process of that, that God broke into my world. And he quoted to me Matthew 11:28, Come unto me, 
all ye that are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I had lived life my way. I did everything that the world said would be fun and enjoyable, and it left me empty. And, and I remember that as I heard that, it, it startled me because I thought I was the only one in the room, but I wasn't. Jesus was there, and I didn't know it. And, and the Lord, the Holy Spirit, like translated that text for me, and it was as if the Lord, the Lord, the thought that came to my mind was this, look, you did it your way. Look what has led you. What do you have to lose? Try me. And you know, that's logic. That's good logic. And so I made the decision to follow Jesus, and I haven't regretted it. I have not regretted it. But my point is this. I didn't care to know what God knew until I discovered that God cared about me. And when I learned about that, it made a difference for me. It made a huge difference for me. And it will for us all. So this whole thing about the law, God is working to save us. He understands the messed up material. My confidence should be in one thing and one thing only, in the Lord Jesus and what he's promised to do in me and through me. Why do I say that? So that when I do do something good, let him get the credit and not me. Are you with me? Let me not condemn my brother because he's not doing it just the way I am. Because I don't know what's going on between him and the Lord. He, he may be perfectly okay between, he may be doing all that he knows. You do realize that no one will be lost for believing error. That's in the spirit of prophecy. People will be lost because they knew the truth and didn't follow it. Are you with me? So I, I, I can't enter into judgment on the person. Now, I can discern whether they're doing is right or wrong, and I can comment to that. But I don't know the motive. I don't know what's going on in their hearts, and that's not my place. If I try to do that, I've entered into a realm that belongs only to God. And by the way, the Bible refers to that as blasphemy. As blasphemy. And uh, which brings us to our next verse 11. What will the judgment bring to light? For God will bring every work into judgment, including what? That includes the motives behind all the good things that I do. That's the motives behind the good things that I do. I, have come, I am coming more and more to the place to distrust myself. That is a safe place to be and to place my confidence in Jesus, not in myself. And the next one, verse 12. What is Jesus seeking to accomplish in his followers, the church, through the judgment process? Ecclesiastes 5, 12, and 27. Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. All of that is sanctuary terminology. And you'll recall that the lamb could not be presented if it had any of those things, because that represented sin. It represented sin. You know, <clears throat> it's not what we profess that reveals what we are. During World War II, I, 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 I think this illustration does, uh, explains it best. But during World War II, the Allies and the Axis forces would be fighting over a city. And, and we're talking about house-to-house -house combat, which is just crazy wild because you never know where the, the enemy is. And so many times, the way they were able to determine where the enemy was was by the sound of the discharge of the weapon. Did you hear me? That's how they could tell where the enemy was because everybody, the different sides, were using different weapons, and so their weapons gave different sounds. And that's how they could tell. In the spiritual warfare, it's the same. Paul reminds us that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. The weapons that we use are delineated, laid out for us in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. In the upper room that night, before Christ's crucifixion, if you study Jewish culture, you will find that Jesus unloaded on Judas. He fired his weapons of love in full fury in an attempt to win that lost soul. The devil also has his weapons. 
Let's take a look at them. Galatians 5. Galatians chapter 5. And I really, I wish I had several translations. And this is one of those times I would love a paraphrase. Because some of these words we don't use today. But there's enough there for us to get a good understanding. Galatians chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery. By the way, that can be in the mind as well as physical. Fornication, uncleanliness, lasciviousness, idolatry, sorcery. What's the next one? Hatred. What's the next one? What's the next one? Outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, dissension, heresy, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why am I sharing this with you? Simply this. We can tell which side of the battle we're on by whose weapons we're using. It's not what I profess. It's more than that. It's what I live. Number 13. What happens if a sin remains on the books unrepented of and unforsaken? Exodus 32:33 says, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Ezekiel 18:24. But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, all of the right this is very critical. All of the righteous which he has done shall not be what? So all of his good works will be removed from the book. Why? Because they weren't theirs to begin with. You see, when we do something right and good for the right reasons, it's because God is working in us. We can't take credit. And the human carnal heart wants credit. And there can be no credit. We submit and receive what God has given to us and allow Him not only to be our Savior, but our Lord. And whatever He leads us to do, whatever success is given, we lay the accolades at the feet of Jesus. Are you with me? So important. All the righteousness which he has done will not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed, he shall die. But look at number 14, don't despair. But what if I have repented of my sin and have turned from it and by faith have claimed the blood of Jesus as my atoning sacrifice? Will my sins be blotted out and my name remain in the book of life? Isaiah 43, 25. I, even I am he who blots out your transgression for my name's sake, and I will not remember your sins. Can you say amen? amen. Revelation 3, 5. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before the angels. Philippians 2, 13 reminds us, for it is God works in me both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God is not trying to find a way to keep us out of heaven, friends. He's doing everything possible to get us in. Are you with me? We need to cooperate with him so he can be successful. And the hardest thing to do is to admit that our good works don't count towards my salvation. I do them as an expression of gratitude and love for one who was willing to surrender everything to save me. Are you with me? If you love me, keep my commandments. Number 15, while the investigative judgment is taking place, what is my part? 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves as to whether you're in the faith. Prove yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are what? Disqualified. And so during the Day of Atonement, the righteous, the Israel was searching their hearts to see if there was anything there. Now I want to say this, and I'll repeat it in the next presentation. If you ask the Lord to reveal to you if there's any sin remaining in your life, and at that moment nothing is revealed to you, don't borrow guilt. Don't sit there and sweat it. Whose job is it to reveal it? Did you ask? Yes. So remain in contact, and in due time, if there's something, He will reveal it. Go about your father's business. I, I, there are people here that, are, that I run into, not here, but I run into, that are just worried to death. 
God has promised to take care of us. So, but the thing is, we got to consent, give him permission so he can work in our lives. Just stay connected, keep asking, and in time, the Lord will reveal those things. But when he does reveal it, don't excuse sin. And we'll spend a little bit more time on that in our next section. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, we're going to go through this rather quickly. We're going to look at the operation. I'm going to read it. And so you're going to get it by seeing it and by hearing it. So we're going to deepen impression. Let's look at the note. We must search our own hearts and lives by comparing ourselves with Jesus and his law. We are not irrevocably locked into salvation by one initial or isolated act of believing. We are called to continue in Jesus. There must be a sustained, persevering commitment to him, a continuous personal union with him. And this is accomplished by choosing him as our Lord and Savior, how often? Daily. Daily. Consider, if we understand the key importance of the power of choice in our day-to-day lives, we will have no difficulty understanding the operation of the pre-advent judgment. Number one, our initial choice to receive Christ by faith puts us in Christ. At the moment of our initial commitment, Jesus gives us the legal right to live forever with him. The moment we ask him internally, he gives us that legal right. I like to picture in my mind Jesus turning to an angel and and saying, make another crown for this one. There's a crown waiting for us, friends. And what we just described is the outer court experience, coming to Jesus and asking him to be the Lord of our lives, acknowledging that we are sinners and the only way we can be saved is through that precious blood, committing our lives to him, that's justification. Jesus at that moment gives you a new past. Whatever you have done, you realize, of course, people, well, whatever you have done is now belongs to Jesus in his life now. His past is yours. You with me? That's justification, the legal right. But let's continue. Look at two and three. Our sustained habitual faith choices to keep on receiving him keeps us in Christ in a state of perfect security. Number three, consciously and deliberately, we must renew our surrender to Jesus' control. That's voluntary, by the way, not forced. On a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis. This is, what, this is what the Bible means by abiding in Him. By continuing in the faith. Enduring unto the end. Keeping ourselves in the love of God. And holding fast the beginning of our confidence firm unto the end. You see, victory is nothing, is not something that we receive apart from Christ. Did you catch that? In other words, if it was raining outside, and let's just say rain was sin, and you were out there getting soaked, and you wanted victory over wetness, and you didn't know what to do, and suddenly you found Jesus walking towards you with an umbrella and offers you to come under it, are you out of the rain? Yes. Do you now have victory over rain? Yes, but are you safe now to separate yourself from him? No. Victory is Jesus. Are you with me? It's not apart from Jesus. You know, there's a lot of stuff in my life, and I share with you that I'm ashamed of. Hear me. If today I decided to live a good life apart from him, it wouldn't take long before I would fall back into everything I was before him. It wouldn't take long. I remember one day in a district, uh, I was doing a a Wednesday night prayer meeting, and a man came to me. He was generational Adventist, a very precious man, and respected in the community, and he took me aside. He He had this look of desperation in his eyes, and he said to me, I have struggled with pornography for 12 years. I can't get free. So I asked him this question. What's your devotional life like? He said, it's sporadic. How has your victories been? Sporadic. Is there a connection? I said, this is what I want you to do. I gave him the book, Desire of Ages. And I said, 
I said, I want you to be, go before the Lord and give him permission to do whatever he's got to do to rid this of you. Anything it takes, anything. And spend time with him every day. Think of Jesus. When this thing comes and tempts you, cry out to Jesus. Call upon Jesus. Think about Jesus and be wise. Don't place yourself unnecessarily where you're going to be tempted. Use your head. And you know, I don't remember what the time period was, but it wasn't long when he came to me with a big smile and tears in his eyes to say that the Lord had set him free. By the way, that's, usually, that's my plan too for getting people off smoking as well. I give them desire of ages. Jesus is our victory. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's the key. It's spending time with Jesus. Now don't get me wrong, there is a struggle. There is a desperate struggle to surrender and to do what Jesus calls us to do. But with the call to surrender comes the power to obey. Are you with me? Very important. Okay, we're on number four. And here's the fear factor. One factor and one factor alone can jeopardize our security and take us out of Christ. That is, our own will, our own decision to do things our way. So one element of risk remains, but that lies within ourselves. While no man or demon or circumstance can destroy our security in Jesus, we can destroy that security by carelessness or perversity or neglect. Number five, accordingly. When our individual cases are reviewed in the judgment, before Jesus comes to bring his reward with him, only one matter will need to be investigated. Did this man or woman continue to abide in Jesus? Remembering that an abiding relationship with Jesus is always manifested in a life of obedience to his commandments. We are not saved by club membership. Number six. In the end, we pass judgment on ourselves. If you want a reference for that, Desire of Ages, page 57. We pass judgment on ourselves. By the consistent quality of our personal day-to-day -day choices, we are now deciding or sealing our eternal destiny. A godly character is made up of thousands of individual choices which we are now making in response to the Holy Spirit's prompting. And each day we're either saying yes to the Holy Spirit or we're saying you realize, of course, what this is saying is that the closing of probation is done by me. Number seven. At no point in time, either at conversion, during our Christian lives, or at the judgment, does God act arbitrarily to override or manipulate our power of choice. The decision of heaven's courts are not arbitrary. It is our decisions that determine the verdict. Heaven simply recognizes them. At the judgment, God takes note of the current quality of our commitment, our current orientation of heart and will, and places, places his seal of confirmation upon the lifestyle or character that we have consistently chosen. God's verdict in the judgment simply discloses and vindicates the quality and direction of our habitual personal choices. I want to ask a question. Is God fair? Yes. yes. God is fair. Preference. Oh, I'm sorry. Desire of Ages 57. We pass judgment on ourselves. Summary. As free moral agents, we are the architects of our own destiny. Our decision all along the way are what count, not just those at the beginning. Acceptance of Jesus does not make us into robots. The salvation process is not automatic. Our initial commitment to, ha to him does not take away our power of choice. We are always free to choose another master. Accordingly, it is not God's future decisions at the judgment that we're to fear. It is our own decisions, the ones that we are making now, and they are under our control. And now the note. These considerations should not rob us of the quiet assurance that all Christians may have. They only protect us from the false assurance of resting comfortably in a relationship that has never existed or one that we have since lost. Does that make sense? We are living in a in sobering time. And so, it, I don't know about you, but I think of that song, that hymn, Prone to Wander, 
Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I don't know about you, that describes me pretty well. And so I, am, I have to constantly, each day, come before the Lord and give him permission that if I wander, that I give him the right to do whatever he needs to do to get my attention. Amen? I don't trust me, but I sure do trust him. I sure do. Number, uh, number 16. When the investigative judgment is done, what verdict is reached? Revelation 22, 10 through 14. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And by the way, this is very interesting. What you're looking at are the two opposite extremes of a spectrum. And so there are two, two characters are being developed right now. That of the Prince of Darkness and that of Christ. By beholding, we become changed. Be very careful of what we choose, brothers and sisters, to listen to and to watch. The idea that we're watching movies of violence and calling it entertainment when God calls it an abomination ought to send us a warning because it is by beholding. You have, we have no idea how subtle. Let, let me share with you this one story just to show you how subtle, how easily of influence we are. Coming from the Midwest, many of you, if any of you have any experience in the Midwest, you know that it's not too surprising to run into people who have never left the county <laughs> because you're married to your farm. And, and so that's life. I mean, if you come from California, you're like, what? That is so weird. But that's not weird out there. And, and so people are connected to the land, and they don't wander far from it. And um, there was this family, three of their sons joined the Navy. That was so strange. They had never left the county. And all three joined the Navy. And so a local, uh, I can't remember if he was a sociologist, or, uh, or, or psychiatrist, or what it was, but he went over because he wanted to find out what in the world took place in that family that those three kids took off and all joined the Navy. And so he spent time interviewing. The, the parents were like, we have absolutely no idea. <laughs> and uh, couldn't figure it out. And so when the boys came home, he, he spent some time with them, and it didn't take long to figure out what it was. Over the mantle was a painting, a beautiful painting, of a ship cutting through the sea. Mm. And those three boys were influenced by it. What can be said of the movies and of the music? By beholding, we are being changed into one of two characters. And at the very end, both will be fully developed. Both will be. Let me finish that. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Hebrews 9.28. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. And we can meet him in peace with nothing between our soul and our Savior. And uh, so just look at the note there. The removal of sin from the sanctuary is the final act of the sanctuary service. Thus, when Jesus' work and the investigative judgment is done, the destiny of all would have been decided for life and death. By the way, that decision was made by us. Probation is ended and Jesus returns for his children. And number 17, is Jesus able to secure my case before the heavenly court? Romans 8 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation and those who are in Christ Jesus. How often? Always. Daily and every day. What I'm going to do in our next presentation is we're going to look at why Jesus waits and as we do, we're going to take a little closer look at the process of God setting us free from sin. The process of how God sets us free from sin. And we're going to look a little bit more at the process on just like an everyday level. But it's going to reveal to us the next study why Jesus has not returned. Let's close out with a word of prayer. I will, I will kneel. Father, You have given us the freedom of choice. We have the responsibility to exercise it wisely. Lord, you have, you have emptied heaven of its greatest gift in your Son. You have mobilized every possible resource to save us. But whether or not you will be successful in our lives is up to us to come to you, to confess our great need to boast in nothing but in Jesus and to invite you into our lives and to permit you to do what you must.
It's a reminder, Father, that we are to spend time with you, that we have to be very careful of the things that we think about because actions follow thoughts. And to ask you to help us to harness in those thoughts, not to let them run wild. Lord, that is something we cannot do, but we're reminded that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So Lord, I pray that as we just kind of simmer a little bit in what we have read, I pray now that you will prepare our hearts for the next section to understand why you have not returned yet. Thank you for your goodness. And Lord, I pray now that you'll prepare me for that talk as well as, as all of us. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.